I owe some of you an apology. If you are an Indianapolis Colts fan, um, I need to admit to you and apologize because for the past well, several decades, I have vehemently cheered against the Indianapolis Colts. And let me give you the reason why I have done so. See, back in, I don't know, late 90s, mid 90s, there was a girl who came to youth group and she came from the Indianapolis area. And every year, at the beginning of the school year, at the beginning of fall in youth group, she would ask for prayer or something for the Indianapolis Colts to win the Super Bowl. Now, you have to understand, in 97 and 98 of the 16 games, the Indianapolis Colts won three. They were not going to win the Super Bowl that year. It was not going to happen. Her hope was false. It just wasn't going to happen. And so I, you know, as a high school guy, vowed to cheer against the Colts from that point on. And I have done so. <laughs> Our hope is in more than the football team. Our hope is not hopeless. And today, we're going to be looking at hope. We're going to be looking at hope that comes from God. Even though sometimes things seem hopeless or things seem like they're taking too long or seem, things seem like nothing new has happened anytime recently, our hope is in God. When we talk about hope in God, some common questions do arise. Probably the most common is, why do good things happen to bad people? But there is an answer to that question. And so that's where we're going to get. Turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 17 and read through chapter 3, verse 6. So read with me. Malachi 2. You have wearied the Lord with your hands. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Remember the book of Malachi, the last book of the Bible that was written in the Old Testament before Jesus came. Malachi wrote to a Jewish audience who had just come back into the land of Israel a hundred years earlier. A Jewish audience who had been commanded by Cyrus to rebuild the temple. They had completed the temple, and now things had set 
for nearly 100 years. And there was a question, I think, on the people's mind. What's God done lately? Yes, 100 years ago, God helped us come back to the land, rebuild the temple. But what has God done for us lately? He said he was going to send the Messiah. Do you see the Messiah? I don't see the Messiah. What's going on here? Where is this God that we worship? What's going on? And this is the question that dominates this society. This is the question that Malachi addresses. And his answer is actually really simple. Put your hope in God. So let's break down some of these verses. Let's look at verse 17 to start with. There is a common question that I think is a question that many of us have asked, that many of us do ask. And that common question is, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to bad people? We, we have a God of justice, right? Why do good things happen to bad people? Actually, I don't think that's the real question on people's minds. I think that's the question that we ask because we know that our real question we probably shouldn't ask. I think our real question is not why do good things happen to bad people? I think the real question that we want to know is why are great things not happening to me right now? That's, that's the reality of it. But this is the question that was asked, essentially. Um, really, the Jews are asking this question. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. They're saying, look, look, why has God not acted on my behalf? This is the related question. Why has God not acted on my behalf? Why has God not wiped out these people that oppose me? Why has God not taken charge of this situation and made great things happen to me? The failure of the people was a failure to see the big picture. They're asking this question. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. It must be that God just loves these evil people. That must be the situation. Now, that's pretty short-sighted. God had brought the people out of Egypt. He had guided them through the wilderness. God had delivered them during the time of the judges. He had provided for them during the united monarchy of Saul, David, and Solomon. He patiently withheld. He helped them rebuild the temple. He had provided for them time and time again. So the question had to have been, what has God done for me lately? As wearying him. Look at the start of verse 17. You've wearied the Lord with your words. We'll talk about that just a little bit more. You see, their questions actually betray a deeper, a more dangerous question. And that's what we see at the end of verse 17. The deeper, more dangerous question, is God really just? Is God really a just God? This is a dangerous question. Because God defines justice. The answer is very, very simple. Yes. If you doubt God's justice, then you have the wrong view of something. And then this is what God's going to really bring out. If you doubt God's justice, then the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. Sometimes we don't know the whole story. Sometimes God is doing something grand, and we just don't know the whole story. Sometimes... We don't know the bigger picture. Sometimes we don't know the true 
outcome sitting behind what we think is going on. Sometimes we have been patient enough. Sometimes we have the wrong definition of justice. What it comes down to is you are allowed to ask God questions. You are allowed to say, God, I need your help in believing this. Questions are okay, but rebellion is not. Let's go back up to the beginning of verse 17. It says, you have wearied the Lord. The word for weary is a physical word. It's the idea of being physically spent. So, you know, you go lift weights all day, and at the end of the day, you're asked to pick up your guitar, and it feels really heavy. That's weary. That was a Wednesday night for me. God doesn't get weary. He doesn't get physically spent. That's impossible for God. No. God is using this term to describe his state. God's saying, I'm getting tired of it. I'm getting tired of what you all are saying. I'm about ready to get involved here. So those of you who are parents, you understand this word weary, right? When your child asks you for the 15th time for the scoop of ice cream, and you say, you ask one more time, and we're done. That's what God's saying. You have wearied me with this question of, am I just? You have worn me out asking this question. God is just. We're going to see in just a minute that the answer is that God is about to act. But before we do that, I want to take you to probably my favorite passage. This is probably my favorite. Turn in your Bibles. I didn't put this up on the screen. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to Book of Mark, chapter 9. I don't know that this is my favorite. I have a lot of favorite passages, but this, this ranks up there. Mark 9, 23 and 24. Jesus is interacting with a man who has a child that has an impure spirit, an evil spirit. The man asks Jesus to heal him. And Jesus responds in verse 23, everything is possible for one who believes. And then this is one of my favorite verses. The man responds in verse 24. Immediately the boy's father explained, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Why is that such an important verse for me? Because this is the verse that I find myself proclaiming all the time. God, I believe you. I trust you. But help me because I'm struggling with this. Help me in my unbelief, God. I trust you, but help me in my unbelief. This is a very different way of asking God questions than what we see going on in the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, the people are saying, God's not just. See, he hasn't dealt with us. Here in Mark, the man is saying, I believe. I know I'm supposed to believe. And in my heart, I believe. But my mind just can't get over the impossibility of this. And Jesus' response is to solve the problem right then and there. To exercise the evil spirit. So, let me make this into an action step for us today. 
we are in the midst of remodeling our sanctuary. We are nearly done. In fact, we have a month left, and we're going to be celebrating a dedication service over there. We are so close. But then, what are we going to do? Once a year has gone by, two years has gone by, once 10 years has gone by and we're in there, I don't want us to ask the question, God, what have you done for us lately? I want us instead to determine right now that when doubts arise over the next 30 years, that we will face those doubts by crying out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Determine right here and right now that when doubts arise in your mind, when the memories of the victories that we've had in rebuilding and remodeling our sanctuary, when those memories fade, because they will, we will forget things, determine that we will cry out, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. The question that we started with was, why do good things happen to bad people? Well, God does give an answer to that question. The first answer God gives is what I would call the scary answer. Back in Malachi chapter 3. The scary answer to this question. Because God has not chosen to judge them yet. Sometimes good things happen to bad people because God simply hasn't chosen to act just yet. Doesn't mean he's not going to act. It means he hasn't chosen to act just yet. Remember, these people in Malachi, these Jews, are waiting for the Messiah. And they're saying, when's the Messiah going to come? The Messiah hasn't come yet. The Messiah is not coming. God just, he loves evil people. Let's them just be. God says, I haven't chosen to act just yet. Why? Because God's timeline is on a scale that we can't comprehend. That's how he starts off. He says, I will send my messenger. We have hindsight, which is 2020, and we know from Matthew 11 that God's messenger was John the Baptist. And God did send his messenger. God says, I will act. I'm going to do this. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord, Adonai, master, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The Messiah will come and he will get to work. God's timeline's on a scale that we can't understand. The Messiah did come to the temple. Jesus came. He brought about renewal by dying on the cross, paying the price for sin, defeating sin, marking the beginning of the end. The people wanted to know why good things were happening to bad people. And the answer is really simple. Because God hasn't chosen to act just yet. But just wait. God is in the process of acting. And God gives us a picture of how his actions work. God's actions are the actions of a refiner. He gives us two pictures here. The first picture is of somebody refining silver. Did I say these out of order? And the second, I said these out of order. The second is somebody who's laundering soap, doing laundry. So I want to tell you how silver refining worked 
back at this time. They used a process called cupulation. What you would do is to get silver, silver often is found in lead deposits. So you'd take large quantities of lead, you would heat it up. As the lead heats, it oxidizes. The oxidized lead can then be heated further until it begins to turn into a gaseous state. From there, you take pieces of bone or other porous material and you mix it into this oxidized mixture. And the oxidized lead begins to bond with the bone and other porous material. You can extract that and you're left with silver. It is a long process that involves lots of heat, lots of patience as the refiner works and waits and waits for the silver to be all that's left. That's one picture of what God's doing. God is refining. The other picture is of somebody doing laundry. So how does laundry soap work? Laundry soap is what's known as a um, surficant. A surficant is an atom that has two different structures on it. On one side of the atom, it's called hydrophobic. That means it bonds to oil. Okay? The other side is hydrophilic, which means it bonds to water. So when you're doing your laundry, fundamentally what's happening is the soap enters the clothing. One side of it bonds to the oils in your clothing. The other side of it is looking for water to bond to. You mix in the water, and as the water flushes through the clothing, the piece that's attached to the oil pulls the oil out as the water goes through the clothing. And that's how laundry soap works. And this is the picture that God gives us of what he is doing. Again, it's a long process that requires mixing things together and allowing them to sit and churn and wait. And God says, just as the refiner or the launderer waits and endures through this, so is God waiting and enduring. It's not that God is not just. It's not that God is not going to judge the evil. It is that God is in the process of refining towards an ultimate goal. The goal that God is working towards is acceptable worship. That's what verse 4 is all about. In the end, the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. As in days gone by, as in former years. God is at work even though we don't necessarily see him at work. And for the next 30 years, I want us to remember that God is at work. Even if nothing has happened for a period of time, it doesn't mean God's not at work. Sometimes God's work is invisible. Sometimes it's like the refiner that's just in the process of heating things. And it's just waiting. And once it gets to a certain temperature, the refiner starts adding porous materials and all of a sudden all the lead's extracted. Or somebody doing laundry. You rinse the clothes, right? And then the laundry soap comes in and then all of a sudden things start happening. But sometimes we are in a pause period. The end goal is acceptable worship, but it takes time to get there. So let's make this an action step. Let's take time and let's pray our own worship to make sure it is pure. Remember, God's end goal is pure worship here. But right now, and for the next 30 years, we need to ask that God keeps us sitting and waiting, remembering our hope is in God. He is at work. So my challenge to you is to pray and ask God for patience.
I've got another point that we'll get to in a minute, but before I get there, I actually want us to do this. So take a minute and pray and ask God to give you patience for the next 30 years. Father, I thank you for the way you have acted in our church through its history. Through decades of work, you've brought us to this point where we are almost done with this remodel of the sanctuary. But as we celebrate that great victory, I also pray that you would give us the patience to be able to reflect back on what you've done and patiently wait for what you're doing next. Father, let us not doubt you, but rather put that hope in you, knowing that you are at work. Even if it's a hundred years, you're at work. And I pray that we would be patient as we move forward when we get into our new sanctuary. In Jesus' name, amen. So that was kind of the scary answer. God is going to judge sin. That is coming. But there is also what I'm going to call an assuring answer. And the assuring answer is that God's children have no need to fear his judgment. God is going to judge sin. That's the reality. But if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and what that means is that you have placed your complete faith in Christ's death on the cross as payment for your sins— that you are trusting completely that he has paid for all of the sins that you have committed. If you have made that decision to place your complete trust in Jesus, you have no need to fear God's judgment because your sins were already judged on the cross. As we look at verse five, the first part of it, what I'm reminded of is that God's demands are high. God demands that people live according to a high moral standard. And God will purge sin. He may purge sin from your life where he disciplines you, that you would stop a particular sin. But God's standards are high. Ultimately, God will pass judgment on those who sin, who have not accepted Jesus as their Savior. Seven sins are used here in verse 5. Seven sins that describe those who do not properly fear God, who do not properly revere God. I just want to real quick go into some of these just so that you can see them. Uh, the first one is sorcery. Sorcery is the act of attempting to control the physical or spiritual wor- world through some incantations, charms, or other rituals. And that is a sin that is spoken against vehemently in the Old Testament, we should have nothing to do with that. The second one is adultery mentioned. That's failure to uphold one's marital covenant. It should be something that we have nothing to do with. Then it gets a little bit more interesting. Swearing to a lie. False witness. God is truth. When we lie we are offending the very character of God. It is an offense to God's character, to who he is. 
Next one is taking advantage of workers. Taking advantage of other people is one of the sins mentioned here as a prototypical example of what it looks like to not revere God, someone who takes advantage of other workers, someone who oppresses widows or somebody who oppresses the fatherless. And then there's an interesting one. Denying justice. Denying justice, it says, to foreigners. I wanted to talk about that for just a second because we have to put things in context. Remember, the Bible was written, the book of Malachi was written 2,300 years ago, 2,400 years ago. And so there weren't, you didn't have a passport that said what your citizenship was. If you showed somebody that 2,400 years ago, it would make no sense to them. Okay, foreigners were people who were culturally unlike you. It wasn't strictly somebody from a different country because national borders didn't exist the way we think of them today. Foreigners were people from a different culture than you. And this is one that I think we really struggle with, denying justice to those who are outside your bounds of culture. So think about this. Somebody wrongs one of your family members. Do you get up, upset about it? Yeah. Somebody wrongs somebody who's close to you, that's like you. You get upset about it? Yeah. You want to know how many times that I've heard somebody else get wronged and they say, well, they got what's coming to them because they're not really part of our culture. That's actually a violation of this. We should care about justice across the board. You may be middle class and you may say, well, the rich had it coming to them. That's, that's actually denying justice to a foreigner. They're not part of your culture. You deny justice to them. It might be that um, it's somebody who's unlike you in the way they talk, in the way they dress, in the way they look. We must be strong supporters of justice. All right. I didn't want to get too deep into that, so I'm going to just keep moving forward. But I wanted to at least mention that. Verse 5 goes on to summarize what the real problem is. There's a laundry list of sins, and those are all prototypical of one big issue. And the big issue is a failure. The real problem is a failure to revere God. That's the bigger issue going on here. We could sit here and we could develop a huge list of sins. I think our focus would be wrong. We could list them all out. I think our focus would be wrong. The text says at the very end of verse 5, but you do not fear me. Fear here is not phobia. Okay? It's not a fear of God in the sense of uh, theophobic. It is a fear of God in the sense of revere him. You don't honor me. You don't keep me as the chief source of information. You don't keep me as this chief source of morality. You don't think of how this will affect your relationship with me first. You don't think of how this will affect others' relationship with me first. Fear of God says we always put God first. We always revere him. So the real problem wasn't a bunch of individual sins. The real problem was that they failed to revere God. So we should revere God. We should honor God. If you have a Bible like mine that has headings, there's an unfortunate 
heading break that breaks up the flow of the text. I think verse 6 actually goes really well with verse 5. It says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Why does that go so well with everything else? Because of one really important fact. That those who are called by God can rest confident in his immutability. So there's your theological word for the day. We have just talked about people who are questioning God's justice. And God says, I'm going to judge sin. We've talked about all these individual sins that are typical of somebody who doesn't fear God. And we've talked about all of these really negative sorts of things. And the book of Malachi, in all reality, is is kind of a depressing book. It's pretty negative. There's a lot of downers on here. But then there's these little nuggets that are critical to understanding the book. And verse 6 is one of those nuggets. God says, I, the Lord, do not change. I am immutable. That's the theological term for unchanging. I, the Lord, do not change. And God had promised Israel that he would bless them. And because of that promise, even though judgment was coming, even though God had not brought the Messiah yet, the people of Israel could rest confident in God's immutability Yes, he would judge sin, but they would not be destroyed because God had chosen them. And that's exactly the hope that I want us to take home today. You may not ever achieve victory in these sins even that we've mentioned. But if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you can rest confident in God's covenant with you to save you. God doesn't change. He's promised that those who accept Jesus' death on the cross as payment for their sins will have eternal life with him. And the God who does not change is not about to change that. You can rest confident in God's immutability. God's promise is secure. Look Look at how he gives that. I, Yahweh, his personal name, do not change. God can promise in nothing stronger than himself because he is God. And on his name, he says, I don't change. I am going to save those who depend on Jesus. Perfection can be elusive. Sometimes we can feel like the goalposts are moving. Sometimes we feel stuck in sin. Sometimes we ask the hard question, like, why do good things happen to bad people? And sometimes we realize that we might be the bad people. But God's promise is he doesn't change. And if you rest secure in Christ, you have eternal life. Do you ever feel like the world of sin is huge and you're stuck in it and you just, like, everything you do, there's something wrong with it? The hope is in Christ. When I was in college, uh, kind of our, one of our senior capstone courses in our aviation degree was in multi-engine airplanes. And we had a teacher that he consistently would move the goalposts. It was, it was hard, you know. You would be flying along and an engine would fail. And so you'd have to learn how to land with one engine. 
It's hard, okay? And so you finally master that, and he's like, oh, now we're going to do that in the clouds, so you can't see. Okay, fine. And you finally master that, and he says, oh, now it's going to be nighttime. And you finally master that, and he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to fail your electrical system too. And it was like, no matter how good you did, he would move the goalposts and give you something harder. And I finally realized that he was just trying to see where we would finally break. My game was, well, what if I just don't master at this level here and I just keep working on something I actually know how to do and see what happens. But sometimes sin can feel like, I think, oh, I mastered this and now I'm dealing with this. Oh, I finally had victory in this area and now I'm struggling here. I, the Lord, do not change. He is immutable. He's not going to move the goalposts on you. You can rest secure in your salvation in Jesus. So my action step for you, take some time. Praise God for the promise of salvation as you patiently place your hope in God's timing. Let's praise God for the promise of salvation. Let's patiently place our hope in God's timing. And as we go through the next 30 years, Remember, we're secure in God's salvation. God's timing is perfect. He is at work. Our memory verse for the month is Colossians 3.23. Will you say that with me? Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Colossians 3.23. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we are working for you. A God who is unchanging, a God who gives us assurance of security in him. I pray that we would work as unto you, that we would be patient, knowing that sometimes it may feel like nothing's happening, but in reality, you're working in the background. I pray that we would strive for moral purity. I think of the list of sins that you gave in the book of Malachi. I pray for victory as a church, as individuals. Father, I pray that as we strive for moral purity, though, that we would recognize that in your immutability, you provide salvation. You offer that any who would place their trust completely in Christ would be assured that they would not be destroyed. I pray, Lord, that as a church, as we patiently hope in you, that we would always bear in mind the fact that we have assurance in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.